I'm Kelly Evans, host of CNBC's The Exchange, which is now a podcast. Subscribe today. It's your one-stop shop for the day's top business stories. Plus, listen in for lots of original reporting, in-depth conversation, and some of the best of CNBC's award-winning investigative work. Subscribe to The Exchange for free, and you can always catch The Exchange live weekdays at 1 p.m. Eastern, only on CNBC. See you then. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. Other people want to make friends. I'm just trying to make you some money. My job is not just to entertain, but to educate and teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CNBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. Can a rally really be led by just two stocks, Micron and Macy's? Can a semiconductor company and a retailer actually spur a nice advance? Today, the answer is yes, because of the incredible pin action these two companies bring to the stock claims. With the Dow gaining 63 points, S&P climbing 0.41%, NASDAQ falling 0.63%, when many of us thought that today, well, it was going to be a damn day. Let me explain. Sometimes you have these big picture macro concern days, and that's all that controls stocks. An unruly bond market, sharply rising oil, a dead end in the trade talks with the Chinese. All aboard! When you're drowning in one of those soups, it's hard for individual companies to influence anything, including their own share price. Other times, though, there's a vacuum of information, a real dearth of what matters, like we had today. In this situation, we can actually care about individual companies and what they have to tell us, provided that these companies are important enough to their sectors that they can give us tremendous pin action. And, of course, we only care about what they say if they're telling us something that goes against the grain. That's Micron and Macy's to a T. Coming into today, both stocks were disliked with considerable short positions, particularly Macy's, as a prominent analyst just slapped a sell recommendation on it last week. And they are total bellwethers for their particular sectors. Micron, because it makes the basic building blocks of all tech devices. Macy's, because it's a highly visible brick-and-mortar department store chain that carries a lot of merchandise. Consider Micron. First, you should know it's actually one of the cheapest stocks in the entire S&P 500 because there's a perception that the numbers are about to fall off a cliff. That's why. (laughs) Micron makes DRAMs and flash drives, and these are widely regarded as commodity products. So when pricing gets strong, people assume that competitors will come in, open a ton of new plants, and quickly flood the market with new supply. I get it. Both DRAMs and Flash, which are used in everything from cell phones to cameras to computers, have behaved like total commodities in the past. We know semiconductor equipment companies are happy to pump out as many machines as possible uh, to sate the demand from different uh, companies that want to make these chips. Plus, there's never been a lot of discipline among the DRAM and Flash memory makers. So historically, every boom here has tended to lead to a bust. That's why stocks like Micron can never seem to get a decent price to earnings multiple. Remember, that's how we compare stocks to stocks. Makes sense. The earnings get obliterated when DRAMs and Flash go from being in short supply to being glutted. Nobody wants to pay a premium multiple for that kind of business. And, of course, anyone who says this time is different gets laughed off the stage 
because investors have lost so much money believing that about Micron over the years. Nearly everyone who owns the stock views it as a kind of seesaw. Or let me put it another way. Micron has $13 of earnings power when things are going right, but only about $2 of earnings power when things are going wrong. So, yeah, while it looks like it's trading at five times earnings, very cheap, it might actually be trading at 28 times earnings if its competitors add new capacity and the business falls apart. Now, Micron's last quarter was a thing of beauty, pulchritude even, a a true blowout. With DRAMs in very short supply and flash holding up fairly well. It didn't matter, though. The perception at the time was that this was the last good quarter, and there would soon be enough new semiconductor equipment in the system to cause flash and DRAM pricing to break down. So what happened? The stock just got obliterated. Sell, 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 sell. But as Martin Ansys, the very bright CEO of Lamb Research, one of those big semiconductor capital equipment makers, told us repeatedly, these modern-day chips, the DRAMs and the Flash, they've changed a lot since the old days. They're far more complex. You can't just build a new plant and pump out additional supply with the snap of a finger. These are no longer commoditized. These are now secular growth stories. That's Martin's view. I've come around to it. So today, RBC Capital issues a buy recommendation on Micron titled Rationality and Cyclicality, saying that the fears are overblown and it's time to buy the stock, currently at 56 bucks. They gave it an $80 target, basically making the argument that I've been making for a while now. At the same time, Mizuho told you to get ready for Micron's analyst meeting next week because you'll hear about how everything is in tight supply. Boom, the stock rallies 4.6%. I did try to get people to know that the stock would go down, but now it's coming back up because of that analyst meeting. Uh, what's the pin action here? First, Western Digital, which makes flash memory, got a huge boost today. Lamb Research and Applied Materials, Capital Equipment Companies, of course, Scorch Tire. Plain Vanilla uh, Semis, uh, Text Instruments, Intel, Skyworks, Analog Devices, they took off. As I've said many times, the semiconductors are a powerful leadership group, and today they took their rightful place at the front, all because of these MU, symbol MU, recommendations. All right, how about the chain known as Macy's? Holy cow, was this an important quarter. Six sessions ago, we got a shocking report from a person by the name of Kimberly Greenberger, an analyst at Morgan Stanley, that just trashed the company, talking about faltering same-store sales and declining earnings. She gave you a sense that whatever's been working is obscuring, and I quote, the underlying deterioration in core real earnings before interest and taxes. Now, if you recall, she trashed Macy's, and I trashed the report. I thought it was just wrong, Okay. And I feel good about that. Hopefully, I kept you in it. Today, Macy's reported, and I got to ask, what the heck are they smoking at Morgan Stanley? Not only is there no deterioration, Macy's actually saw its sales and earnings accelerate thanks to better merchandising. CEO Jeff Gannett, one of my faves, is executing one of the most exciting turnarounds I've ever seen. I recommended Macy's after meeting Jeff. When it became clear that while he's a great merchant with lots of ideas about fashion, he understood that he needed to fix the balance sheet before doing anything else. Stock had plunged to $18 because of worries about the dividend, which at the time sported a higher than 7% yield. But the debt buyback, that took the fear off the table. And now Macy's is a $33 stock. It's up 10% today. Biggest gainer in the S&P 500. Now, Macy's has embraced technology, cash, uh, cashierless checkout, virtual reality for furniture, true localization, curation of fashion. It's got the same store sales up 
4.2%, although if you back out a particular promotion, it only came to 1.7%. Still, even that lower number is much, much better than people were expecting. And on top of that, management raised its guidance substantially. All three brands, Macy's, Bloomingdale's, Blue Mercury, delivered very strong results. All regions experienced a pickup. Handbags, accessories, sleepwear, fine jewelry, fragrances, skincare, dresses, men's tailored clothing, activewear, home, all better than expected. Just think of all the pin action here. First, obviously, brick-and-mortar retail is better than we think. So Target and Walmart, right? Apparel makers like VF Corp, PVH, Loyal Floor, and they've got nice tailwinds. Nike and Under Armour deserve their recent strength. Estee Lauder must be doing very well. Then on a larger scale, the health of the consumer, repeatedly praised by Gannett, means good news across the board, even for retailers uh, in very different categories. I certainly feel better about Home Depot's uh, weather-related miss after hearing from Macy's. Gannett did so much good here, like creating a team of merchants and technology experts that have melded brands with e-commerce and private label to produce some incredible results. I think the analysts haven't been able to model the intangibles that Gannett's bringing to the party. It's not on their spreadsheet. Things just are pretty darn good out there to have all of these stores in all of these regions with all of these categories doing so superbly. The bottom line? Micron and Macy's, two companies with nothing in common, except that they've been written off by the naysayers, managed to ignite a rally when we figured today could bring another sell-off. Feels good, doesn't it? Chris in California. Chris. Hello, Mr. Kramer. This is Chris Duan from California. Yeah, what's happening? I would like to say a big thank you to you for all you have done for us. Ah. My stop is Boston Scientific. What do you think of the claim made by 60 Minutes on last Sunday regarding their mass product on counterfeit material? Look, I've got to tell you, I think Boston Scientific is a great company. BSX is a company that I've liked probably since the teens, and I'm sticking by it. Okay. Jim in Arizona. Jim. Mr. Kramer, thank you for taking my call about Lennar. The Trump lumber tariffs and high labor costs have squeezed the home builders' margins while the increase in mortgage rates haven't helped the sector. But the street lists Lennar to buy, and I bought in at 62. You've already said your first loss is your best loss, which I failed to heed, and now I'm paying the price. I believe it's a good company. What's my best course? Lennar is a fabulous company. People can't seem to ever believe that there's anything else that matters other than interest rates. I've been through the conference calls. I think Lennar is a buy. I understand that every time interest rates tick up, you can just overlay that stock chart on the tenure, Okay. But I think that's a mistake. I would not sell it here. Ara in Ohio. Ara. Booyah, Jimmy. Hey, hey. As a client, as a client of Discover Financial, I'm always blown away by the customer service of both the credit card and banking units. They continually innovate with services such as a new fee forgiveness program. While the stock is up 30% over the last 12 months, it trades at a measly nine times this year's earnings whereas competitors like J.P. Morgan trade at 12 times. Right. Should this industry innovator get rewarded with the I, higher I, multiple? I, look, I've got to tell you, I've liked, I remember bumping into the management years ago up in Boston and saying what I'm about to say to you, which is that why the heck is your stock always so cheap versus Visa and MasterCard? And the answer is it's wrong. I would buy the stock here. All right, Macy's and Micron ignited today's rally. These companies caused incredible pin action. Kudos to management. On Man Money tonight, monthly downloads of Square's Cash App are picking up the pace. So how is PayPal keeping the competition at bay? I'm going to sit down with the CFO. Then, it seemed like the defense plays were one of the few reliable sectors in the market, remember? But recently, the group has been on the decline. 
Could the drop continue? And it's a company whose shares are up nearly 35% year-to-date, operating one of the hottest bases in this market. But is there more upside ahead? I'm sitting down with the CEO of Tableau Software. So stick with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at cnbc.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. PayPal stocks start roaring again. After a remarkable run last year with a stock up nearly 90%, the online payments kingpin, well, has been mostly marking time in 2018. I think it's taking a breather before its next leg higher, but don't take it from me. Earlier today, I got a chance to check in with John Rainey, the chief financial officer of PayPal Holdings. Take a look. John, you've got a really big analyst day next week, and I'd like to know what are some of the themes you're going to go over? Yeah, well, a couple. Um, one is after our last quarter call, there was a, a bit of noise in the market around our relationship with eBay. And so we're hoping to be able to address that to allay any concerns that uh, investors and analysts have about that and our ability to, to weather that transition. We're also blessed with a pretty good balance sheet. And so we'll talk a little bit more about uh, capital allocation. And then lastly, what our plans are to continue to grow at the rate that we've done over the past couple of years. As a CFO, you understand capital allocation. Uh, I'd like to get a sense of, with a $5 billion buyback, whether you actually put that money to work and whether, given the fact that the cash flow is extraordinary for PayPal, not talked about enough, there is an opportunity to do some acquisitions and buy back even more stock. Yeah, well, all of the above. And so when we look at our cash generation, start there. We're we're generating free cash flow margins that are 20 to 25%. And we've been doing that sustainably. We've got uh, the sale of our U.S. consumer credit receivables that occurring in July, and that's going to give us $6 billion more of cash. And we've already got a a strong balance sheet as it is. And so with with that backdrop, we believe that not only can we return cash to shareholders, but we can continue to acquire companies for growth as well. And there's a lot of opportunities to go out there and and target companies that are complementary to our platform. And so you should expect to see us be more active in both those. Now, we all know about the separation. Uh, You mentioned the noise with eBay. And I think that there's a presumption that you guys are enemies. Uh, that there will be bad will, and that, frankly, neither one wants to do well. I'm getting the opposite view when I speak to people in your organization. And I also suggest, and like to suggest to you that there have to be a lot of opportunities that you can't take advantage of because of the current agreement. Uh, that's exactly correct. So let me start with the fact that we have a very good relationship with eBay. They're our largest customer today. They still represent about 13% of our overall volume. But as we look at transitioning to the next chapter after the existing operating agreement ends, we feel very good about that. This was always contemplated in our plans. And I'll give you a couple data figures to, to put this in context. So if you look at the average revenue growth of the 87% of our business since our separation from eBay, it's grown at 23%. 
on average each quarter, 23%. The eBay part of our business has grown at 4%. If you fast forward those to 2020, 21, you can see that eBay will be a much, much smaller part of our overall business. But very importantly, we've announced an agreement with eBay where we will extend the branded uh, payment button. And that's the largest and most profitable part of our business. But to your point, the, the next chapter allows us to go partner with other marketplaces in a way that we haven't been able to before. It's possible that those additional new partnerships could be greater earnings per share than what you might drop off with with eBay. It's absolutely possible. So just if you look at our top 10 marketplaces other than eBay today, that represents tens of billions of dollars of payment volume for us. They're growing at a rate in excess of 50% on average. And so we're very excited about the opportunities that are out there. Why do you think that so many people feel that Amazon must win if they come into your uh, category? Because even though Amazon is unique in terms of how powerful it is, it's powerful because it destroys retailers. Why would a retailer want to partner with them, giving them their valuable information versus PayPal? Yeah, so it's, it's interesting. If you look at, we just I, I think we should acknowledge the fact that probably every boardroom in America is talking about Amazon and the impact on their business. And, and certainly if you are losing your business to Amazon, it's curious why you would want to let them come in and process your payments and have access to that important information. So what we want to do is continue to power commerce for the other 19 million merchants that we have around the world. Fair enough. Venmo. Uh, this morning, an analyst comes out from Nomura and says Venmo needs to be careful because Square Cash is uh, basically growing faster than you. Uh, another story that people want you to play defense on. What do you think? Well, we're exceptionally excited about Venmo and how it's tracking right now. Venmo is very different than a lot of other apps, whether it's Zelle or Square Cash or, or, or others that are out there, in that it contains a social feed. And that's very important to this millennial demographic that's using that. They place a value on experiences. And so something like 90% of all transactions on Vidmo have incorporated the social feed where people are sharing their experience with one another. And that's very important to merchants as well because it's effectively word of mouth advertising. Um, including emojis. Including emojis, yes. Yeah. Okay, so uh, you bring up the idea of millennials, younger people. Uh, you have an ethos, and the ethos is to help the unbanked wherever they are. There are a lot of people around the world who are unbanked. One, how big is that market? And two, how come millennials seem to know that you are the banker for the unbanked? Yeah, so you're exactly right. We, we have a vision of democratizing financial services that for those that are underserved today. And so there's something like 2 billion people across the world that don't have things that you and I take for granted, a checking account, a banking account, a home mortgage, traditional financial services. The unique aspect about those 2 billion people is that 70% of them have a mobile device. And so with a mobile device, we can put all of the power of a bank, bank branch in the palm of their hand and allow them to, to join the world of e-commerce and shop online. How do you get to those people to let them know about PayPal? Well, one thing we did last year was we launched Domestic India. That's something that we're extremely excited about. I think if you're going to be a, a global payments player, you've got to have a footprint in India. It's a market of 1.2 billion people. There's something like 400 million mobile phones in that market. And so we're very excited about the launch I know of this. Walmart would agree with you after the gigantic acquisition. Yes. Let me just ask it, not a lightning round, so to speak, but I know you watch the show, but uh, gambling and PayPal. Yep. 
possible? Um, so we actually allow that for certain merchants today where it's legalized and, the, and, and, and uh, consumers can do it legally as well. And so we're watching this closely, and if that's what uh, our merchants and consumers want to do and they can do it in a legal way, we'll support it. I know Square's made a big fuss about the idea that they do crypto, but how about this? How about if you could translate crypto immediately into dollars? Wouldn't you want to be at that cash register so that there's no, uh, let's just say, uh, opportunity to have PayPal on the hook? Well, so that's actually the issue that we see with crypto. So with our Braintree part of our platform, we actually were one of the first companies to allow merchants to accept uh, uh, cryptocurrencies years ago. But what we saw is that because of the volatility of the cryptocurrencies, if you're a merchant and you have, let's say, a 10% margin on a product that you sell and you accept Bitcoin, for example, and the very next day it moves 15%, you're now underwater on that transaction. So what happens, or what was happening, is they were immediately moving that to a more stable currency. So right now, we don't see a lot of interest from our merchants, but if it's something that stabilizes in the future and is a, more, uh, is a better currency, then we'll certainly support that. All right, John, one last question. Why do you think, uh, I know I have my reasons, but why do you think that PayPal's had to play defense ever since you got here, even though the stock's been remarkable before? Yeah. Well, I think it's a couple things. One is that we're misunderstood as a company. We compete in a lot of different areas, right? And so we, not only do we have a branded payment button, but as I suggested, we do unbranded processing. We do international money remittances. And so there's competition coming from every area. And what I don't think is, is commonly understood is the competitive moat that exists with a strong two-sided network. And so we have over 220 million consumers on one side of the network, 19 million merchants on the other. And you can have something that appeals to consumers, but if merchants don't accept it, it's of little value. And the reverse is true as well. And importantly for us, we control that experience with technology end to end. Well, I look forward to the May 24th uh, analyst meeting. Thank you so much, John Randy, PayPal CFO. Good to talk to you. Appreciate it. Most of this year, few groups were stronger than the defense contractors. While the overall market lost ground later on in the first quarter, the big arms dealers just kept climbing. And it made sense. Not only did Congress recently approve a massive budget for the Pentagon, the Trump administration has also been going all over the world to sell military hardware to our allies. But then something happened that took us by surprise. When the major defense contractors reported this earnings season, and here we're focused on Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, and Raytheon, the three largest pure play American defense contractors, their stocks just got obliterated. Even as their numbers were, I'd say, mostly pretty strong. Since then, they've begun to bounce off of their lowest levels as President Trump pulled out of the Iran nuclear deal. And now we have some serious tensions across the Middle East, something that always gives these stocks a boost. However, the whole group is still down pretty substantially from its highs. Some of these names are even down year to date, despite what I would actually consider to be phenomenal performance. So what just happened here with the defense stocks? Are these contractors yet another leadership group that got taken out back and shot? Or did they merely take a breather before beginning their next leg higher? In other words, should we view the stocks of Lockheed and Raytheon and Northrop Grumman as buys into the recent weakness? Or, or 
Is there some reason to steer clear of this once red-hot cohort? Don't buy, don't buy, don't buy. All right, for all of those who aren't familiar with these guys, Lockheed Martin makes the F-35 Joint Strike Fighter, which is a huge project that's selling like mad, not just here, but all over the world, as our allies have begun to adopt it en masse. They've also got a big helicopter business and a booming missile and fire control division. Northrop Grumman specializes in aerospace platforms, electronics, think radar and sensors, not to mention anti-missile systems and drone aircraft. As for Raytheon, these guys have a reputation for being the super high-tech defense contractor. They're all about state-of-the-art electronics, mission systems, integration, sensors, missiles, space, and airborne systems, and what's now known as C5I, command, control, communications, computers, cyber, and intelligence. Whenever we make a deal to sell Patriot missiles to our allies, that's Raytheon which is still one more reason why we own the stock for my charitable trust, which you can follow along by joining the ActionAlertsPlus.com club. So let's talk about the trajectory here. Even with the recent pullback, these gigantic defense contractors have been serious outperformers since Donald Trump won the 2016 election and the Republicans held both houses of Congress. That's because the military is about the only thing the GOP loves to spend money on, aside from tax cuts, of course. So Lockheed's up. An astounding 33% since the election. Northrop Grumman's up 39%. Raytheon, best of all, up 53%. During that period, the S&P 500 has gained 27%. The strength here made a ton of sense. These companies were major beneficiaries of federal largesse, both in terms of contracts with the Pentagon and also with the corporate tax cut, which has been a real boon for their profitability. Yet in the last few weeks, the defense rally, let's just say it's been stopped in its tracks. The stocks of Lockheed and Northrop Grumman are both down about 10% from their 2018 highs. Raytheon's lost about 8% over the same period. Now, why were these stocks surging in April? And why did they quickly give up the ghost near the end of the month? Remember, on April 13th, the president ordered a missile strike on Syria after the regime there attacked its own people with chemical weapons. And there was a lot of fretting that this could lead to a more prolonged conflict, one that might possibly end up involving Iran or even Russia. As it turned out, though, the missile strikes were a one-off development. If you assumed these companies would get more business because of increased U.S. involvement in Syria, you assumed wrong. However, the point is that these stocks had run going into earnings season, and not for the right reasons, frankly. When we finally got the results, the sector sold off hard, even as the actual numbers on the surface on the surface were pretty darn good because there was nitpicking that suddenly became so important. And this way, let's take them one at a time because it's really kind of It's kind of a very difficult reporting season for these guys, and I didn't see it coming, frankly. Consider Lockheed Martin to start, okay? They reported a huge top and bottom line beat and even raised its full-year guidance. Stock took off before the conference call. Then uh, it quickly gave back all of those gains and then some and finished the day down 6%. How the heck did that happen? Well, some of management's conference call comments made investors really uncomfortable. First, they played down the impact of America's massive new defense budget. I I don't know why they did that, saying that it was too soon to tell if all of this new military spending would generate faster revenue growth. The other fly in the ointment, even though Lockheed raised its sales, raised its earnings forecast, the company left its cash flow from operations guidance unchanged. And that's the thing that really upset people. It upset them audibly. I, I mean, it's, it doesn't sound like ridiculous nitpicking, right? I, I thought so. But you have to remember that Lockheed had run up a lot going into the quarter. And when that happens, even small things can totally derail the stock. Plus, it sure didn't help that Lockheed reported on the same day that Caterpillar made that ridiculously stupid and inane, inaccurate statement about the first quarter being the high watermark for its earnings. That's still been 
the thing that's kiboshed so many of the industrials. After the miserable action in Lockheed, the market suddenly got a whole lot more skeptical about all the defense stocks. So when Northrop Grumman gave you a big, fat, top and bottom line beat and raised its earnings forecast the next day, the stock still got dinged down 2.6% on top of the 4% decline the day before, thanks to the pin action from Lockheed Martin. It was just hideous. There was some hand-wringing about margins in Northrop's aerospace segment and how most of the earnings beat came from a lower-than-expected tax rate. But honestly, the analysts didn't even try to explain the weakness, mostly chalking up to the market's new anti-defense defense attitude. The day after that, we heard from the one that took my breath away, okay? And I think it's really important that we spend some time on this. We heard from Raytheon, and they delivered a more modest top and bottom line beat while raising the full-year sales and earnings guidance. And the stock was, in the uh, early market, way up. And I said, oh, geez, action alerts. We got the right one. But then it sold off hard. Here the culprit was the forecast for the next quarter, which came in a bit weaker than expected. But the full-year numbers were very strong. Again, this is what happens when your stock runs up in earnings. Remember, this had been the best performer. You get no credit for the good, and everybody freaks out about the bad, even if it was much more. I went over this I went over this call again and again. I simply did not see why this stock should be just stripped of all its gains. The other thing, of course, is that on April 26th, we got that big rapprochement between North and South Korea. And if there's one thing investors in the defense sector hate, it's peace talks. That may seem callous. Uh, but arms dealers make more money when tensions are flying high. And, of course, missiles are, too. So where, uh, where do I come down on this group now that the stocks have come down and Kim Jong-un is making noises about pulling out of the peace talks? Here's the thing. We know Lockheed, Northrop Grumman, and Raytheon are doing extremely well. And this is before the monster new defense budget even kicked in. All three companies were fairly conservative about what this budget might mean for their business, which to me suggests that this stuff isn't necessarily baked into their stocks here. Plus, stocks do get cheaper if they're high quality like these companies, and all three of these big boys are now selling at an astoundingly low 17 to 18 times next year's numbers. That's crazy given the growth they have. Bottom line, if you like Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, and Raytheon before the quarters, you should like them even more down here. As much as these stocks tend to trade on big geopolitical happenings, the truth is that their long-term performance is far more tied to government appropriations, and we know that the U.S. and our allies are spending a fortune on military contracts. My favorite? Hey, look, I like Raytheon the most. I mean, I like White Hot Patriot Missile Program. But there's a solid case for owning all three of the big dogs right here, right now. Quentin in Texas. Quentin! Uh, Jim, what's going on, my man? Uh, you know, just trying to figure out why the market couldn't hold the gains today. I think there's some attractive things, including Take-Two Interactive, which is down 5%. To me, that's an overreaction. Let me help. All right. I'm calling about LUV Southwest. Uh, great bottom line operators. Incredible balance sheet. Interest coverage of 35. I know the dividend increase in share repurchase uh, today boosted a little bit. Uh, but stuck in the low 50s. Uh, intrinsic value in the low 70s based off earnings and cash flow. Why is it not in your bullpen? And will oil push it lower to make it a better entry? You raise a great point. It should be in the bullpen for actual alerts. Why? We had a great trade before. It's come down below where we liked it. You know what? Bye, 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 bye. Tomorrow morning, we're going to suggest, I am going to suggest that we add this one. You got a great call. How smart are our viewers, Regina? That's a question my executive producer. Brilliant. 
student and also the airlines came down so much they are right to buy and southwest is the best gary kelly's doing a good job all right it's time to get defensive lockheed martin northrop Grumman, raytheon now raytheon's my favorite but there's a case for all of that much more mad money ahead including a company that works with the likes of google amazon web services spacex is it time to consider tableau software symbol data i've got the ceo then, uh, do you like scary stories? I got a doozy for you about fear and greed, and of course, all your calls rapid fire in tonight's edition of the Lightning Round. So stick with Kramer. talking about the continued strength of the cloud here on Man Money. We're probably never going to stop doing that. But there's another aspect of this story that I also like a great deal, the rise of data analytics. Now that we have all this digital information sitting in gigantic server farms all over the world, of course, a lot of computers, too, all over the place, you need some really powerful software to figure out what that data actually means. When Congress gets up in arms about Facebook's handling your user data, you know the analytics industry has arrived. Which brings me to one of my favorite players in the space, Tableau Software. That's simple data, easy to remember for you home gamers. These guys have been killing it lately. Two weeks ago, the company reported a strong quarter, but more important, I think, Tableau keeps rolling out new products, get their industry-leading technology in the hands of more people. Late last month, they rolled out a product that helps cut down on the amount of time that's needed to standardize data before it can be analyzed, along with a bunch of new subscription offerings that will give users access to a, more, uh, to a much bigger set of the company's software at different prices, and I think that's really important to discuss that, too. But while this stock has given up some terrific performance, given us some terrific performance up nearly 35% year to date, 60% last year, it's pulled back about three points, which may be the opening you need to get in. So let's take a closer look with Adam Slipsky. He is the president and CEO of Tableau Software. Find out more about the quarter and his company's prospects. Mr. Slipsky, welcome back to Man Money. Good to see you, Adam. Have a seat. Hi, Jim. Good to see you. Well, first of all, congratulations. I mean, ever since you came over from Amazon Web Services, it has been a remarkable journey. I know you think it's early, but I like the seven-word mission statement. Can you give it to people? We help people see and understand data. That's it. And in order to do that, according to a Harvard Business School study you mentioned, 80% of the time people spend cleaning and prepping data, only 20% analyzing. Don't we have to flip that? Exactly. I think a big part of that mission is going to be to help invert that ratio because it's just wrong that people have to spend 80% of the time before they can even do the analysis on it. That's why we released this new product, Tableau Prep, just a few weeks ago to help attack that front part of the data uh, data and analytic pipeline. Okay, so a lot of people are saying, well, Jim, you have a lot of these data analytics companies, but they actually are all different. And the way I like to do it is pick an example, and you say what you do for them. Almost all of our viewers, if not all, are familiar with Schwab, because it's a great firm, and a lot of our people do it themselves. What do you do for Schwab? Well, we love our partnership with Schwab. So uh, the amazing thing is now, 50% of Schwab employees around the world use Tableau on a daily basis. Where is it on their their cell phone? Is well, it on their desktop? Uh, both of the above. Okay. And uh, they're using it in all sorts of functions. So obviously uh, a lot of the uh, financial planners, also a lot of back office functions. It's really used uh, for uh, customer acquisition really throughout, uh, throughout the firm. And they're one of the early beta customers of our new Tableau prep product. And again, it's early. It's only right. a few weeks, but uh, their early results are showing that they're cutting 50% of the time out of data preparation. So for any one person, that's hours per week 
for an analyst. It's, it's really How exciting. How is that possible? I mean, we all have data and we put it in. We try to figure it out. Where is, the, where is that delta where the time goes down? Well, I think a lot of people are just not using, most people are not using sophisticated data preparation tools today. They're, they may just be munging data in Excel and trying to get it ready and hope right. it's good enough to go do analysis on. So with Tableau Prep, we've taken that simple, intuitive, easy to use, yet powerful you know, Tableau formula and applied it from analytics over to data prep. So just for example, uh, we use a lot of sophisticated algorithms and machine learning in order to help you identify things as simple as a nine-digit zip code is actually the same as the five-digit zip code, and you want to combine those fields. Or capital N, capital Y is the same as capital N, little y, and they're both New York. And those are, those are simple examples. You get a lot more complicated ones, and if you can you know, very easily, with a right-click, uh, harmonize all of that data, it cuts down vast amounts of time particularly if you're talking about thousands or even in some cases millions of rows. Okay, now you came from Amazon Web Services and you didn't just come from there. I mean, you were in charge of marketing, <laughs> sales, business development, pretty much everything. Uh, why can't Amazon just do what you're doing and then if I use Amazon Web Services, I don't need Tableau? Well, AWS is a great partner of right. ours, but so, okay. So, okay. so are all the other cloud vendors. So uh, a lot of our, com- our customers still want to deploy our software on-premises, and that's great. A lot of them now want to deploy in the public cloud, so we work really well with AWS, uh, Azure, and Google. And a lot of them more and more want to deploy a full SaaS offering, so we have our own managed service offering called Tableau Online. So we think that flexibility, that choice in deployment is key, because it's going to be a, a, a transition over years to the cloud. And one of the advantages that, that we offer customers is we can allow them to deploy in all of those places. Uh, last question. Uh, a lot of people are suspicious when I say that we're early. Uh, but you've been early, early, early. How, I, I'm, I, I think I'm pretty accurate when I say that we are, this is a still very early adoption. A lot of people still have their stuff uh, at their premise. Oh, you're talking about cloud adoption? Yeah. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree with that. I, I think, well, you're talking about decades and decades of IT being done on premises. Right. And so uh, even though the cloud has become a, a, a huge business, uh, it, it's still, it's going to take time for all of that to move over. And I think that uh, some people said, hey, we're only going to be cl- a cloud vendor. Other people said, hey, we're pretty much on premises right. and we're, we're prepared to do the extra work to let people use our analytics uh, you know, anywhere they want to. And right. I think it's going to be a heterogeneous environment for years to come, and we're going to be all of those places that people need us to be. Well, I am so thrilled that you have, uh, I think, turned the company around. I, of course, remember that gigantic day when LinkedIn and you guys fell, and I said, this is one i got to get into. And boy, have you ever made this thing right. That's Adam Slipsky, president and CEO of Tableau Software. That's symbol data. And this company is in the sweet spot of all the worlds we talk about every night. Man, money's back there for the break. It is time! It's time for the Lightning Round! Welcome back to the Lightning Round! Welcome back to the Lightning Round! Welcome back to the Lightning Round! And then the Lightning Round's over. Are you ready? Skate! Dad, it's time for the Lightning Round! Oleg in New Jersey. I'm sorry, New York. Oleg! Boy, Jimmy. Jimmy, I have a quick question about Johnson & Johnson. Oh, I like J&J. I thought that Meg Terrell interview made me even want to... Alex Gorski, good job. Let's go to Don in Massachusetts. John! Booyah, Jim. Booyah. Is this stock a buy? Pure storage. Yeah, it is. It's actually real good. It's one of the ones that I should have on 
Uh, they're very smart management. I like them very much. Let's go to Tom in North Carolina, please. Tom. Jim Booyah from North Carolina. Yes. My question is regarding Gulfport oil energy stocks. Mm, uh, not high enough quality. We got a lot of higher quality stocks in that group. Uh, you run, you're way, way down the food chain. Hey, by the way, if you want an oil service, buy Slumberjack. Let's go to Rocky in New York. Rocky. Hey, booyah, Kramer. Booyah. My stack, my stack is Facebook, FL. I, uh, FL is, is Foot Locker, not Facebook. Um, what do I do? Foot Locker. Okay. Uh, I, I think Foot Locker's okay. I like Nike even at a 52-week high. Uh, well, that might, because uh, what I saw from Bruce Kamen today, the chartist at Real Money, makes me feel very, very good about it. Robert in Tennessee. Robert. Thank you, Jim. Great job. Thank you. I'd like to have your take on NSP, please. Insperity. Man, this thing is a horse. This is a service company that just never, ever seems to quit. Called them a business optimization company. And we've been recommending it for, I don't know, I mean, like ages. How about Perry in Florida? Perry. Hey, Jim. Hey, what are your thoughts on LKQ? Would you be a buyer after its recent big drop? You know, we we like this company, and it has just got clocked. Let me go do some work about how we got this so wrong. It is down 24%. This is one that we've got to do. we got to figure out what the heck happened here. Let's go to Dave in Wisconsin. Dave. Booyah, Jim. What's your opinion of preferred apartment communities? Ticker symbol A. Not a big fan of multifamily and don't like that 7% yield, thinking you're stretching there to get that. Multifamily is Ixnay. Charles in California. Charles. Booyah, Mr. Kainan. Booyah. Uh, my uh, stock is um, Cyrus Technology, Logic Technology. What symbol? Uh, C-R-U-S. Cyrus uh, Logic. Okay, I. You know, we're not really recommending uh, the components players that go into Apple right now. Uh, just too hard. Let's go to Sandra in New York. Sandra. Hey, Jim. How are you? I just wanted to get your input on some uh, on, on FRO, Frontline. I have never liked the very large crew carriers, and I'm not going to change my mind right now. Boy, have people done poorly in those. And that, ladies and gentlemen, the conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. This market has so many stories that keep being framed the same darn way. Heads the bears win, tails the bulls lose. The dollar, bonds, commodities, currency, you name it. And you know what? I'm sick of it. Just think, when was the last time you read a positive story about anything involving any of those asset classes? Whether they're going up or down, they're used as a club to frighten you, the investor. The way the so-called experts talk about this stuff is downright Orwellian. Let's start with U.S. Treasuries. How many times have you read that because of trade tensions, the Chinese will most likely be gigantic sellers of our bonds, which would put tremendous pressure on interest rates as the Fed's no longer a buyer of bonds and the Treasury has to sell tons of them to finance the gigantic budget deficit? Basically, we were told that China was holding our whole economy hostage. Or maybe not. The Treasury Department just released its data for March, and lo and behold, hey, how much did the Chinese bury us with? I mean, they crushed us, right? Oops. Turns out China didn't sell squat. They actually bought our bonds, $11 billion worth, bringing their holdings to a five-month high, right into the teeth of the heaviest trade tensions with the Trump administration. Yet this whole story turned out to be patently false. Honestly, It was always kind of silly. China loves to buy U.S. Treasury bonds because that's how they ensure their currency stays cheap versus the dollar. 
But no one seems to care. None of the pundits who push this argument needs to eat crow, right? That's the way it works around here. It's kind of 1984. Oceania has always been at war with East Asia. Now we have a story about how the yield on the 30-year Treasury is dangerously close to the 10-year Treasury. You heard me right. Before, we were supposed to worry that rates are too high. Now the fear is that some of them are too low. Every time I read one of these stories, it's as though it was designed to freak you out, make you panic. The truth is, we don't even know why the 30-year is so close to the 10-year. I mean, we don't know why, because who the heck would be so stupid as to buy the 30-year with such a low yield, except someone who perhaps is mandated to do so? Makes no sense whatsoever. So it's really hard to conclude anything negative or positive. For all we know, uh, that's just money fleeing from Europe. I mean, why not the Italian 10-year? Is it 2%? And Italy doesn't even have a functioning government. Or how about the fact that the yield on tenure is at the highest level since, whoa, 2011? What does that tell us? The S&P 500 started 2011 at 1,257, and it finished at 1,257. Man, big deal. I guess we're supposed to sell stocks because we're back to 2011 rates despite having a much stronger economy. Uh, that makes no sense to me either. How about oil? We have gasoline back to some levels that it was higher than it was a few years ago. Okay, Is it going to crimp consumer spending? Maybe. But the issue is that we found very little increase in spending when gasoline was lower. So why sell stocks now? Look, the average American should get about $1,600 from the recent tax cut. Uh, that much more than, that's much more, honestly, think about it, than we're going to spend on higher gas prices. Do the math. We have robust employment. Plus, Macy's, largest department store chain, just told us that the consumer's alive and well. Hey, I'm listening to them. Let's not forget there are entire states that are booming, not just because of higher oil prices, but also because the price of natural gas has fallen through the floor, creating tons of jobs as manufacturers build plants here to take advantage of our low energy costs. By the way, lowest in the world. But that almost never gets reported because, well, it's really positive. Uh, uh, Now, I will admit there are real competitive disadvantages to a strong dollar. But it's worth pointing out that the dollar is still weaker now versus the euro, even as we've had a dramatic uh, run in the dollar and in stocks, by the way. So should you sell stocks because the dollar hit a five-month high? My whole point, it is so easy to scare you, okay? It is so hard to set you at ease. I think stocks could be due for a pause. Sure, we're up a lot. But it's only because they've run so much, not because of these often bogus negative stories stick with crazy. I just want to congratulate Jeff Kinnett and the great team at Macy's that has turned that stock and that company around. And I think it's for real. Like I said, there's always a bull market somewhere. I promise I'll find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer, and I will see you tomorrow. I'm Kelly Evans, host of CNBC's The Exchange, which is now a podcast. Subscribe today. It's your one-stop shop for the day's top business stories. Plus, listen in for lots of original reporting, in-depth conversation, and some of the best of CNBC's award-winning investigative work. Subscribe to The Exchange for free, and you can always catch The Exchange live weekdays at 1 p.m. Eastern, only on CNBC. See you then.